Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to a Believe Podcast. I'm your host, John Heusenstamm. This is the Guitar Live. My special guest today, singer, songwriter, guitarist, Chuck Smith. Very soulful guy. Mr. Smith was perhaps the only white guy that was signed to Motown at one time. That's how soulful he is. We had a wonderful chat. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Chuck Smith. Chuck Smith. All right. So when you say the way things are going now, what do you t- what do you mean the way things are going now? Well, I'm just talking about the you know the pandemic and uh, the election and you know the protests and everything else that are going on. I mean, it's uh, can't travel anywhere. It's tough, man. <laughs> How do people it? are suffering? Jobs and everything else. Business. I, I went down to the Santa Monica Promenade the other night. You know, down here close to me, and you know. There's huge stores that are closed down there. I mean, emptied out. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And of course, with musicians, you can't play anywhere. I remember uh, a radio announcer, when this thing first hit, said this could uh, wipe out huge industries. You know, and it was like, what's he talking about? (laughs) (laughs) It did. It oh wiped, yeah, it wiped out a lot of huge ind- and it's still wiping them out. They're still they they've hung on for as long as they could, and uh, you know a lot of them don't make it. It's really really sad. Well, and and especially for uh, musicians and bands that are that are trying to come up and stuff. All those clubs that were hosting all those bands night after night uh, are going to go under. I mean, there's no way. I know two of them right here in Santa Monica that are that are gone. Yeah. It's and really then I heard tough. that there was a, a financier, a guy with money, who just rescued the troubadour. Yeah, right. I heard that too. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, not the troubadour, please. <laughs> <laughs> I just interviewed um, Beth Fichet Wood, and uh, that's where she got her start. She was a guitarist, vocalist for Honk, you know, the Honk band. And, uh, no, I don't. Yeah, they got their whole. Uh, she got her whole career kicked off at the uh, Troubadour. We were talking about that. So, so yeah, the Troubadour is a significant music spot in town, isn't it? Wow. Oh, <laughs> in fact, their hoot nanny that they used to have on Monday nights was a real big deal. Right. You know, they, a lot of people got starts there, and then there was always some band that would finish it off at the end of the evening that was trying out new material or something that were always somebody, you know, a really yeah. big band. So. 
How many different lineups do you think you tried out at the Troubadour? You know what? I played there by myself on Hootenanny Night. The other the other times I played there were with groups. Uh, I played there behind Dobie Gray. I was oh, the yeah. first time. He was super, uh-huh. he was super. Oh, and he was a great great singer. Oh Unbelievable my god. Unbelievable singer. Yeah, he was very You know what's funny though, John, is that we played a version of the uh, Best of My Love that Eagles tune with him. Yeah. And he, there was one thing about Toby, he had a he would lose the beat on certain sections on certain tunes and we would go into the bridge on that thing. And Randy, you know, Randy, you play with Randy. He would have to compensate every single time for Dovey because he would drop a beat on that bridge. Yeah. <laughs> I, I work with singers that are like that. Yeah, they don't have a, a musical sense. They just they, they go uh, instinct with lyrics and uh, whatever their memory can provide them with, but they don't come back in at the right place a lot of the time. Or, or, or yeah. <laughs> hey, should we be? I wonder if anybody but you and me knows this. It's probably inconsequential. The audience doesn't know it, right? Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, but you know, he ended up in Nashville uh, the rest of his career uh, singing on commercials and did really well. Yeah, well, he was a big star at a, at one time. Well, he was. We we got him just. Uh, we were playing for him just after um, Drift Away. Yeah, which was his. Yeah, you know, he had the end crowd, and then a few years later, he had. People drift. still use that. I mean, I hear that song being oh. used on commercials constantly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing is, uh, Paul Williams' brother wrote the song. Oh, really? Yeah, Mentor Williams wrote that song. How how uh, how much uh, work did you do with Paul Williams? I mean, it used to be the Paul Williams Orchestra, and he also had his own TV show for a while, right? Yeah, but this this was um, right. I, I started working with him right when he was working with Barbara Streisand on the Stars Born oh, okay. soundtrack. So I did uh, vocal arranging for him, and then I arranged two of my buddies sang uh, vocal parts, and I also played rhythm guitar in his group. And this is when I heard you mention Chris Caswell on one of your yeah your broadcasts. Well, Chris was the was the band leader when I was with Paul. right right. He was the music director. Yeah. Was yeah, interesting. Character. <laughs> he could now that guy, he's like one of those, uh, he's not a savant, I mean, he's a totally together guy, but behind the scenes, that guy is one wicked uh, Hammond B3 player. I mean, he's uh, yeah, he's sure. Jimmy Smith and then some, you know, he can play. That guy's amazing. Yeah. I love yeah, working yeah. with him. Yeah, we had a we had a uh, a band with Charles Meeks and uh, James Bradley from the Chuck Mangione band. They were the rhythm uh-huh. section, and it was uh, me, uh, Chris Caswell, uh, Mel Steinberg was the sax player, and then those two guys were the rhythm section um, from the Chuck Mangione band. We had this, I mean, we, we were in the studio um, recording after they came off of the uh, Johnny Carson show. <laughs> they came straight from the Johnny Carson studio to the, you know, to the other studio where we were waiting for them, you know, yeah. so we could start recording this album that we were going to do, you know. And uh, yeah, yeah the, Chris Caswell's amazing. God, he's such a good well, musician. The, the funny thing was, yeah, Chris, when he did, like when Paul would do the Johnny Carson show or Merv Griffin back then and stuff, Usually he would only take Chris because Chris would then direct the band through the charts, you know. But because he liked this whole vocal background thing at the time, Paul would take us on those shows with him. 
That's a lot of work so, to coordinate all that. I mean, that you know, must have made yeah. it much, much, much smoother for him. If if yeah. all the weights on his shoulders to actually come up with product, to have a couple of assistants like that ca- covering certain areas, it takes a lot of the stress off of, uh, you know, the expectation that people are putting on him to to produce. Whoa. <laughs> Well, that was great. He had you there. You yeah, know? it was. It was fun. It was fun for a while. And, yeah, yeah, it was. And I love those. Uh, I love those blue glasses you're wearing, man. They look fantastic. I wish people could see glasses. those. <laughs> yeah, I got to stay color coordinated, John. <laughs> yeah. Well, what? Where's your hometown? Where are you originally from? Uh, well, I grew up until I was in seventh grade. Was in Detroit. Okay. And then, then we. My dad got moved to Louisville, Kentucky. Kentucky. Yeah, so that's when I really started playing in bands. Was there? And Louisville was a, a hotbed of bands. Okay. This would have been, well, the first band I was in was in 1959, and actually the first gig I ever played with a band, I actually played drums, and the kick drum had had this painting of a waterfall on the front of it. That's <laughs> it that's original. Yeah, it was hilarious. <laughs> but back then, also at that time. The band was separate, the rhythm section, and then you had the lead vocalist and three background singers. Everybody had that at the time. Wow. You know, that was real, yeah, real doo wop sort of. Yeah, kind of, yeah. yeah. And then a lot of the hits at that time, you know, the Phil Spector stuff and everything, were, you know, and some of the, the black girl groups, the chiffons and stuff, you know, you did all those tunes, and so you needed backup singers, and so the backup singers were doing dance steps, and you know, it was. I used to listen to that music on my little AM radio by my bed at you know every night when I was going to bed. I'd put on the AM stations that were playing Motown, and I just oh, used yeah. to just love those those women singing harmonies and those soul those black soul singers. They were just the end. Oh yeah, it was so good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. who who yeah, were so some good. of your influences then? So you you moved to Kentucky, you were living in Louisville, but who were some of your your friends or your relatives or people that got you into wanting to play the guitar? You know, can you remember well, that yeah. moment? Both my, both my mom and dad are from musical families. In fact, my dad's brother sang with Fred Waring. Oh yeah, you know, sang with them. You know, wow. Night or Christmas and da 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 that thing. Yeah, he was in there. My my mother's whole side of the family. My grandfather played in dance bands at night when after working all day at the on the line at Ford. You know, so it, music was all over the place. And so my dad was playing jazz all the time. I heard all that. Benny Goodman was a big hero of his at the beginning. Um, okay. You know, and then when rock and roll came in, what are you going to do? The guitar was the guitar was, was a kingpin. Oh yeah. Yeah, so absolutely. how did how did uh, that work out with school? So you're, you're getting interested in being a, a professional musician. You're in school. How did you uh, how'd you do in school while you were trying to forge a career? I, for I yourself? did. I did. Fine. I, 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 I always I, I did you were level headed. You were you're even least, keel. Huh? Level headed, even keel through school. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't. And, and we were playing all the time. We played dances, all that kind of stuff, you know. Do you remember your first guitar, that very first guitar you ever had? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, what? It was one of those Harmony, um, Harmony Sears and Roebuck F hole guitars that had the red spray paint sunburst, black and red, right? You know the one I'm talking about? 
Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. then the next one was a Zenon a nylon string guitar that my uncle bought for my mom. And these are guitars that I had when I was like seven, eight years old, you know? I mean, like I was just a little kid. Uh, and they just put those in the living room, and I'd walk through, and then I'd pick it up and doodle around, you know, and discover how to make sounds on them, yeah. 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 Pretty- I, I had a, an acoustic arch top Framus. Do you remember that brand? Oh, of brand? course. That's an Italian guitar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't look at me like that. <laughs> yeah, and then I bought... Uh, I bought from this kid. I bought this Gretsch, which I have never seen before. It kind of had a, uh, it was shaped kind of like a Stratocaster, but with none of the beveled edges, you know. Mm-hmm. And I spray painted it black, and I used that for a while. And finally, I I bought with my own money that SG Cherry guitar with the pickup that you pulled up on instead of come down on. Do you remember those things? you actually pulled up on the whammy bar and it had a little uh, screw in the handle of it so you could fold it back and you fold it down, but you literally pulled up on it. Yeah. And that was the original SG. You know? I remember they used to call them a Les Paul, I think, before they became yeah, SG. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you were, you were right there at the uh, inaugural beginning of the whole, oh. what, what do you want to call it? <laughs> <laughs> the end of the world <laughs> yeah, probably. as we know it <laughs> well you know I, I was talking to a student the other day and we were t- i was talking to him i said if you got like a, like the 45 of elvis singing hound dog or little richard doing lucille you put that on the radio now people would still be going what is that oh of course it's still to this day i don't care what the electronics or everything else it was wild, man. It's just well, wild. I mean, we have living here in Laguna Beach, where I'm from, we have uh, Lee Rocker from the Stray Cats. He lives in Emerald Bay, oh, yeah. and uh, he used to come into the guitar shop, and we'd talk about all these same things, and hit, they're still doing that. I mean, and he said they sold more tickets in Finland than the Beatles, and their music <laughs> is all based probably on that one song, you know? So, so <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. It's timeless, you know? That was the that was the music that uh, made my brothers and I jump up out of bed and run around the room. You know, it was like when we first heard that music, we went crazy. Yeah. Well, do you have any other hobbies besides music uh, that you know that you uh, make sure you do to keep you uh, happy and healthy? Oh, now, oh yeah, I'm a big outdoor person. I'm I, oh, okay. I hike to the Sierras and all that kind of stuff. I try to get out here on the weekends up to the mountains and above Ohio. And that's that's the big part. For You're me. a hiker. Yeah. You like backpacking that sort of stuff. Uh, yeah, but I just all that stuff. Just nature. I just like being out in nature. Okay, good. I'm big on that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I'm a bird watcher. I take binoculars. I do that and... too. I do that too. <laughs> that's really yeah. fun. People yeah. don't know how fun that can be. Yeah. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, John, last uh, last week I was up at Morrow Bay. You familiar with Morrow Bay? Yeah, of Bay? course. Well, there's a you can rent kayaks at the estuary there, mm-hmm. and man, there are a ton of birds there. Yeah, that's a real that's a hot spot actually for bird yeah, it watchers. Is. Yeah, it's it's I, was, I couldn't believe it. I was flabbergasted. I'm glad you went. That sounds like a <laughs> yeah, real a fun, fun outing. Yeah. <laughs> so so um, you you. You're in Louisville, Kentucky, 
uh, when did you end up in the Los Angeles area, Hollywood recording, all that sort of stuff? Well, that was that was much later because what happened was is um, I went to college at Michigan State where I played, you know, frat bands, all that kind of stuff. But while I was there one summer, uh, some guys back from Louisville, we got together in a house in Cincinnati to play together. And at the end of that summer, we managed to get a well, first of all, we recorded with the Funk Brothers up in Detroit. Right. It, that was quite an experience. We're going to talk imagine. more about your your Motown association here in a minute, but I just want to get you get you back on track here with your professional career, becoming a very busy recording uh, and songwriter guy. You know. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's what happened. It was right there at that. Uh, when I went to college there, we had that summer and uh, we got a, we eventually got a record deal with Columbia after we did that recording in, in Motown. And so that occupied part of my college career there, trying to make that work. Wow. And playing with the, the going up there to Detroit. I, what happened was is in Cincinnati, we got this with his manager and he just happened to know Mary Wells' husband. Now, Mary Wells, the one that nothing you could do to make me true to my guy, sure. you know, that stuff, yeah. he beat me to the pitch and all that. So he, of course, knew all these people in, at Motown and he fancied himself as a producer. So he decided to take these five white kids up there to Detroit. And <laughs> we recorded two sides. And uh, it was re it was arranged by the guy who did Agent Double of Soul and Edward Starr's first hits and stuff. So we had all these horns, everything else going on. Irie Joe Hunter was playing piano, all these guys. They, they thought we were the funniest thing in the world. We had uh, these three black women came in to do the background parts along with us. One of them had a baby in her arm and she's sitting there reading the parts. <laughs> it was unbelievable. These guys are sitting there with a glass of gin in their hand. They got the shark skin suits on. You know, they just come from a, what they call blind pigs where they play all night long after they finish the sessions. It was amazing. It was just an amazing experience. Surreal, it sounds like. Oh, it was incredible. It was just amazing. Just think if everybody would have had digital phones back then. Oh, yeah. Video, videoing uh, these kind of uh, instances. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was really something. You know, I mean, so we ended up with, this, with these two sides, and we got a deal in Columbia for, out of that. You know. I'm so glad to hear you talking about it. So, so... Uh, you're you're the only uh, white guy on Motown at one time. I knew that, that for was, a fact. That later on, when I finally got that was about ten years later when I finally oh. got to LA. That happened. So there was two different Motown things for me. Connections how how wild! But yeah, how did how did the Suzanne DePass thing uh, come about? Yeah. Well, yeah. After after I got out of school and I I did uh, I was a Vista volunteer for a while, which was the Domestic Peace Corps. So I did that for a year on an Indian reservation in Nebraska. And then I came back to Kentucky and I decided, forget the college degree, I was going to be a musician. You know, mm -hmm. So I started playing in bands again. And so one thing led to another. We had to spend some time in Aspen playing there. And then I came, we came out to L.A., the whole band. And that's where we got the gig with Dobie Gray. Okay. But then we paid some intense dues in Los Angeles. Yeah. Oh boy! I, I know mean, all we, about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah. We, we played a club at one point that was out there in the valley, and it's really hard to even think about it now because we played from about 
nine to one on a Saturday night and you know, we played all week. And then on Saturday nights, we had to come back and play from six to 10 on Sunday morning as well. <laughs> at a church? No, it was at the club. The same <laughs> club? Yeah, you know, it was at the nightclub. Yeah, it was at the same place. What are they yeah. doing opening up in the morning? Is it a restaurant or buffet or something? It was the same. It was just the same. We played the same stuff. It was all these people that had been up all night. You know, it's a lot of speed freaks, stuff like that. It was awful. And we, all, we each got paid $135 a piece for the entire week. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> now, in 1976 <laughs> A brave whistleblower Who strikes at injustice A lightning bolt thrower That's Chuck Smith, Legend of Room 4, from a 2015 recording. This is John Heusenstamm. This is The Guitar Life. If you're enjoying our show, please subscribe. Thanks. <laughs> That's one of the most horrific gig stories I've ever heard, I think. Yeah, it was it was it was it was awful. Yeah, yeah. broke up band really, and, and then I just happened to meet uh, a couple of people who had already signed a, a writer's deal at Motown, and they were white white guys. And uh, one of them also had an artist deal with Suzanne DePass's boyfriend, and his name was Michelle Rabini. Have you ever played? I've with heard him? of that person somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, well, he, he actually played the keyboard on Strangers in the Night, the Frank Sinatra hit. So he did a lot. Of, he was a very capable guy, but he was also a really hard person to work with. Just say know? sleazy, but, okay? Yeah, well, he wasn't sleazy, but he, he just, <laughs> he was in it for for himself in a way, which, and there's nothing wrong with that, really. And okay, he was like, maybe, maybe we're, we're getting ourselves uh, in trouble talking about him that way. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. No, but Michelle was great because we, we had this thing together and Suzanne put me with them to make it into a trio instead of a duo. So we did that album and that's when I started working with people like Jeff Beccaro and all, all those folks. You know, and, and Yeah, the cream of the session guys you ended up with. Yeah, well, okay, so then Suzanne took one of the songs I had written with a buddy of mine and we got a Diana Ross cut. Yeah. And so Baby, Richard it's me. Baby, it's me. Yeah, Rich. Yeah, yeah. You played. You you did a you it's did a, a fantastic job. song. Yeah, yeah, we when we recorded for Diana, Richard Perry was a hot producer at the time, and he was producing the album. And uh, so I get there, and they're playing the the little demo I did with Don, the guy I wrote the song with. You know, with that lick at the beginning of it. And um, 
Jeff is Carol's going nuts. He, he just loves the groove. He was so much fun to work with that guy. But I mean, what he a great guy anyways. to work with. Oh yeah. And plus he was just fun to be around. He was just a lot of fun, you know, but Ray Parker Jr. Was playing guitar. He had just come to, he was like 18 years old. He is fantastic. Uh, oh yeah. Lee Rittenauer was another guitarist on it. Michael O'Mardian was a keyboard player. Yeah, Lenny Castro was on the uh, uh, on the percussion. Those guys, Ray Parker and Jay Graydon, those guys. Oh yeah, those guys are the session session geniuses on guitar. Yeah, yeah. They're not just guys that come in and play what you tell them to play. They can be creative in a group setting and come up with fantastic guitar parts. Yeah, well, I got to play on the session finally because of Ray Parker because they were playing the tune. And so Lee is trying to cop that part that you know, and and Ray says, wait a minute, wait a minute. He said, uh, Richard Perry says, can you go in and play with them? I said, me? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I, you know, I go in there. You mean with people? <laughs> so, so Ray is telling Lee, he says, look, listen to the way he's playing. He says, you're not playing it sloppy enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Ray tells Lee. He says, you're playing it too precise. Listen to what he's doing. So I ended up playing in the session, and, you know, it came out, and, you know, so it was a wonderful experience. It was really great. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah it was. So I... then, right after that, my I, I got a manager, a really, really great manager, and a guy who has turned out to have handled so many amazing artists over the years. But he said, look, let's we're going to do a four-song demo to try to get you a deal on your own so who would you like to play on it and i'll get them if i have to pay them myself i'll get them so i said well okay i'd like to have lee rittenauer play guitar on it so he's fine so and then i said i'd like to have richie hayward from little feet play drums fine (laughs) patrice russian played keyboards and chuck rainey played bass wow and how did they work how did they work together uh, well, it, it worked out fine. In fact, Lee was the real star of the show. He he was he was really something. You know, there, there was a wide variety on the thing. You probably played some of the tunes when when we had the group, which was at, just after this. We put mm-hmm. that group together where I finally met you. Yeah. Well, that yeah. whole thing was uh, a juxtaposition thing because right when I met you, I decided I was going to get married, and that sort of threw a wrench into my life because I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to be a professional musician and a responsible <laughs> partner. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I had to so reassess I... everything. I mean, I did come down from San Francisco to play with you guys, but I left my 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 bride and my newly born, or I, I don't know if Julie was uh, pregnant with Rachel then, but uh, yeah, because I, I really, really wanted to work with you guys because everything sounded so great. But, uh, yeah, we had fun with that. And Dave Garland playing keyboard. And he played that excellent sax solo on that one tune we did. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's so, yeah, it's terrific. And one of the strengths that you have, sir, is that, Uh-oh. you know, to hire you to play incredible solos, you can do that. But you really get parts that fit with the arrangements. And that's the kind of musicians I love. And you were always wonderful at that. I think that's because I played bass first, you know. <laughs> I was a bass player first, and then when I left school, I traveled. Uh, and when I came back, 
from traveling, I suddenly I realized, well, the guitar is kind of cool because I can carry it around with me and I can't play the bass on the beach. You know, I can't take the bass to Mexico and entertain people at a little cantina somewhere. Yeah. So the guitar, yeah. but the bass is a fu fundamental, uh, you know, a group instrument. It's part of the band. So, you know, when I yeah. pick up the guitar, I try to think in the same light, you know, you want the guitar yeah. to fit in, you know. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you, no, guitar. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've done a lot of great work on the guitar, boy. <laughs> I've had fun with it, no doubt. Yeah. I, it's amazing. When I got to Australia, I didn't know what I was going to do. But I, I guess somebody should really inter interview me about all that, you know, because that's, oh, sure. that's a story in itself, because I didn't think I was going to be playing the guitar in Australia. Not for the life of me. <laughs> Yeah. So, so like, uh, you were talking about that old SG that um, that you were playing, Les Paul. Uh, can you talk about some of the guitars you, you know, you went through? Because uh, you know, as sure. you're changing your taste, as your music taste changes, and as you're developing, you know, your career, the guitar plays an important part of that, right? I mean, oh, I mean, come on, it's, it's part of your personality. It's your, an extension of, of what it is you're trying to say, right? What were some yeah, of those guitars? Can you 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 played a Gretsch? You you had an SG. Yeah, well, yeah, I had the SG for a while, and that actually got stolen. because ah. if I st if I had that now, I I, could, I would sell it for fifty thousand dollars or whatever. Yeah, yeah something that's like that. Yeah, those were oh, definitely yeah. collectors' uh, pieces. Yeah, <laughs> I I went through a lot of them. I I you know I had a a Music Man Strat type guitar I had for a while that I really liked. Is that a, a Valley Arts guitar? No, it wasn't. It was a music man. Okay. You know, I think I, you were playing that. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It was a kind of a natural wood finish. I liked that guitar a lot. I, I actually, I played in a band for a while. I played an electrified ovation guitar when they first came out. The actual acoustic guitar. A lot of people <laughs> played, played those. Electric. Yeah. They were, I had a, they were a great guitar. I mean, Glenn Campbell plays those on live television all the time, and they, they sound oh. fantastic. Speaking of an extraordinary guitar player. <laughs> that, yeah, no, he was amazing. One of yeah. my heroes. He was definitely one of my top heroes, Glenn Campbell. Yeah, well, he was the only one of the, the uh, wrecking crew that didn't read music. <laughs> <laughs> so. When I found that out, I didn't feel so bad about myself. Chuck Smith 
Actually, a business name for Chuck is Stray Deuce. If you, if you look up Stray Deuce, you could probably find his material. Chuck Smith, that album, Legend of Room 4, recorded back in 2015. This is a Believe podcast. I'm your host, John Heusenstamm. This is The Guitar Life. If you're enjoying our show, please subscribe. <laughs> yeah. But I, I can read music pretty good now, so I I, I got over that hurdle. Yeah, after yeah. after you teach guitar for thirty or forty years, you just it just comes to you after a while. You show so many people, so many pieces of sheet music pretty soon you say, Oh, that's what that means, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But I have I had all I had a strat you know what what was the strat? They made one at one point that only had the three position switch. Oh, those were the, the yeah the 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 sixties sixties uh, guitars and the fifties guitars only had a three position switch and then they came out with a reissue that had a three position switch and they'd provide you with a five position switch if you wanted to you know trade it out you know switch it yeah, out. Well, one of the only times I tinkered with a guitar was to uh, was it was when I was with Doby is I had one of those and I it was in that first one of those first issues of Guitar Player magazine. There was how you switch it to a five. Yeah, right. Soldering iron out, and I actually did it. How fun! <laughs> Which doesn't like me. I don't usually do stuff like that, you know. Right. So I switched it out, you know. Well, um, vocally speaking, so you're 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 a kingpin, uh, a vocalist, doing vocal uh, arrangements. How how much of that did you uh, end up doing? Did you go through streaks where you were constantly in the studio uh, working with, uh, you know, vocal arrangements and and vocalists and putting the albums together with people and shows and all that. I mean, you must've done a lot of that. Uh, I actually didn't because I was always concentrating on myself as an artist. So I let a lot of that stuff go by. Now, I, you know, when you're talking about uh, Paul Williams and all that kind of stuff there, I, I helped him with the, the, the uh, Muppets movie and all that kind of stuff. We, were, we did recording for that. Well, those things are my big thing was, Excuse me, those things I mean, are musical fiascos. I mean, a, a Muppets, uh, you know, there's so much going on there that's, you know, musical. Yeah, and well, I just had to deal with Paul's part of it, so it wasn't, it wasn't. <laughs> I was always a big Brian Wilson fan, so. Okay. I, and my dad brought me up on the four freshmen, so all the groups I had all had a lot of harmony in them. Okay. And I made everybody sing, you know, so. Mm -hmm. That's that's where I did all of that. And then when I was doing all that recording that we were just talking about, um, that was we did we did some with the two other two persons at Motown. I, I did a lot of the recording with there, but we didn't do a lot of vocal parts on that stuff. Sort of kept it along with them. So it was more like two parts things, you know. Did, did you have any uh, uh, guitar amplifiers that you favored uh, throughout all that? Or did what well, was that just a, I happened to have no, this, no, I happened to have that, or did you go out looking for the right amp all the time? No, I didn't. I, I see you, you were, you're a person that would do that, which is which I admire. I, in fact, I played for a long time on one of the most successful bands I had. I had one of those Naga Hyde plated custom amps. Well, that's what Creedence Clearwater is. Creedence Clearwater used those. I mean, uh, John Fogarty. Really? I awful. I just, but that's what I had, you know, so. You can actually on uh, uh, Keep on Chuglin or one of those tunes, uh, you can hear the hiss of the amplifier before the music comes in. Well, <laughs> you know, it goes, 
whoosh, and then the song would start. That was actually the custom amplifier hissing in the studio. Yeah. Oh, so you probably know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like listening to Hendrix records and you hear the feed, the, the feedback stuff starting yeah. before the ends, you know. Well, those Tolex, uh, you know, those tuck and roll amplifiers were... Uh, they were popular. A lot of guys used it, and they were definitely a good bass amp. You know, I mean, I mean, the bass really? just needed to be loud and clear. You know, I guess a custom amp could do that, but a guitar amplifier with tubes in it and a certain preamp circuitry uh, lends itself to a certain kind of sound that you're chasing. So, I mean, <laughs> let's not get too crazy, but uh, you know, you got Marshalls, you got Fenders. I mean, you got Orange amps. I mean, what what. Uh, you can't. Well, but then remember, John, when, when when we first met, that Roland chorus amp was the big deal. You and I both had one. <laughs> I don't even know why. I think it was because of convenience. Because, but the the idea of having a stereo chorus that's you know swished back and forth between the speakers and a built-in distortion, which sounded like a buzz saw, really. Oh yeah, it was horrible. You know, I had <laughs> yeah. I had guys come up and tell me, you know. Uh, your guitar sounds more like noise than actual guitar sound. You know that? <laughs> that was a role in jazz. For jazz and a clear tone, they were fantastic. But if you tried to play rock, well, I, I shouldn't really diss the Roland amp. I used it for the surf punks. You know, in the surf punk, yeah. that was the yeah. amp that I used. All those guitar sounds and all that strange sort of surfy kind of, that was all a Roland jazz chorus, uh, 120, yeah. <laughs> without any kind of without any pedals or anything i just let the amp do all the uh, work you know <laughs> you're laughing sorry to bring that up <laughs> what's that sorry to bring that up yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well i mean I'm, I'm more well known for that than anything else i've ever done in my life so uh, i'm kind of proud of that i guess <laughs> <laughs> that's got nothing to do with me that has to do with epic records enigma records uh you know companies that ran with all those products when i came back yeah. When I came back from Australia, I mean, the surf punks uh, had probably gone through four or five different record companies. And I was trying to chase up my royalties, right? Because I used to get checks oh. and all of a sudden the checks stopped. And it was because, you know, different companies would buy the uh, buy the album for distribution and they wouldn't send out any royalty, uh, you know. Oh, yeah, you know that whole. Yes, I do. Yeah, I the do. Guy, what did the guy say to me when I called up? Hey. Where's this is Johnny Malibu? Where are my royalty checks? They go, come and get us. Hire a lawyer. You figure it out. You come and get us. It's exactly what the guy said to me. Whoa, <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh. Hey, you're supposed to be interviewing me some other time for that kind of. <laughs> this is about Chuck Smith, not about Johnny Malibu. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have, I have a Doctor Z amp now that I like a lot. Is that a, is that a boutique uh, amp made yeah. made in your area there yeah, in the uh, valley? Used them, um, okay. but yeah, I, I just walked into True Tone Music down there in Santa Monica and I plugged in one of them and it was easy. That's a, I mean, that's like a candy store for a guitar player. Those places. It is. It's exactly the expression I have used in talking about that. <laughs> the exact words I've used. I, yeah. I did. Uh, I was playing with uh, Kofi Baker and we did shows. Uh, at True Tone, you know, they have like a sound stage in the back. And, uh, you know, one of their, uh, I think they have a couple of different outlets. But, yeah, you just walk around there and you go, shoot, look at these, look at these 
amps and these pedals and all this stuff. Yeah. It's like, God, it goes on forever. Have you been in the, in the Fender part of it? Have you been in that part no, of the No, I store? haven't. What's that like? Well, oh, well, the, the other storefront uh, to the, what would it be? Towards Lincoln, um, that became available. And so Fender went in with them on a store and it's all Fender stuff. Amps, guitars, everything. It's all the whole thing is. Okay, where what street's that on? What what do you know where it is? It's at 7th and Lincoln. I mean 7th and Santa Monica Boulevard in downtown Santa Monica. I'm hoping I can get a sponsorship from them. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> sure. God. Sure, you should. I mean, yeah. not not for my own. I don't need any equipment. What I what I need is people to get interested in our show here because we're talking about them, and they're getting yeah. all this PR. Really? You know, well, like, yeah. and they have an excellent shop there too. Yeah, they well, do great a, uh, a repair shop, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I in fact, one of the original partners in the store, his name is Paul. He's a guy I know. Uh, he's the one that ran that part of it, and it's it's really great. Funny thing here. Here's a funny story. I go in there recently. I have a a Strat that has different pickups in it. Mm -hmm. So I had Joe Barden pickups put in the guitar recently. Those are expensive. <laughs> they are, but they gave them. But they had ones they had taken out of some other guitar, and they gave them to me for half price. Okay. Paul was standing there and he said, ah, you know, so the guy who does the work, I'm looking at him. He looks at me and he was one of my students from 10 years before. Oh, how cool is that? <laughs> yeah. Well, that happens to me all the time, but it was just great. He did all the work and did a great job. You know? Fantastic. So, how, how, yeah. about, how about that? Let's talk about your teaching here, because when you say you're teaching, uh, you know, 80 students a week. I don't think people have any idea the kind of uh, output it would require. I mean, you you need to really be, uh, you need to love what you're doing to be able to share that kind of information with so many people on a regular basis. I mean, come on. How long, how long did you teach for that? You said 20 years you were teaching there? 20, 25 years because I'm wow. still teaching. I'm only teaching part time now, but uh, do you get do you yeah. get you get uh, Facebooked and uh, emails from some of your for, former students that are now professional musicians? I've I've had quite a number. It's been very gratifying. Yeah, that part of it's so much so much. Uh, yeah, I know a lot of people that are doing that. And in fact, uh, one thing is probably worth us talking a little bit about is that uh, uh, early on in that 25 years, I had a student, two students who eventually became two major parts of the group Incubus. Right. A multi band. My son like my son Nathan likes that band. Oh yeah. yeah. They were huge. And uh Alex, the, the bass player, is he, he went by the name Dirk Lance, an uh, incredible slap player and stuff. He uh would come back and see me. You know, here's a funny thing people don't understand about record deals. They when one time he came back and they had made two albums, I guess. And he said they were still living off their advances. And they're playing all the play. They played Europe, stuff like that. But they were still having to live off the advances from their record deal. They hadn't made, really made any money yet. So then that album Morning View came out and they had that hit and everything exploded for them. You know, they became multi-platinum and, you know, they could probably still go out and play, you know, concerts and make a ton of money. But he got thrown out of the group at one point. 
And so he came back to take some music theory lessons from me and stuff. And finally, we just decided, hey, you want to put something together? So we had a band together called Willie's Nerve Clinic, and we played for about nine years. tell why there was so much uh, interest in Chuck Smith's recording career. Guy really knows how to put songs together. That was from Legends of Room 4, a recording made in 2015. Chuck Smith. This is The Guitar Life. I'm your host, John Heusenstam. You've been listening to a Believe podcast. If you're enjoying our show, please subscribe. It was a, a trio, and we had a woman drummer. And it was really, it was very taxing for me because I had to do the, how do I put this? It was very busy stuff. I was playing on the guitar to have to also sing lead, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. So it was really a a challenge. The gig was really a challenge. Were you still teaching? I was still teaching, yes. Yeah, that that, to me, that's the, uh, that's, well, actually, I, I, I actually ran the shop. I taught before and after hours, and I was gigging three or four days a week. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I know. You got to keep the money. Make ends meet, you know. You know. To well, just, yeah, especially because you got a family too. To, to, to pay the rent. Yeah, I had four kids, so I, I had to, to. I had to be nonstop. Yeah. But it was interesting to play with somebody like that who had had that kind of success, and their their approach to it because he couldn't read. He had no concept of chord changes and stuff like that. It was all stuff he made up. Right. And that you listen to him and, and it's really complicated stuff. But he was originally inspired by the guy in Primus, Les Claypool. Another, another great bass player. Yeah. yeah. Well, he, he got so he could he could do all that slap stuff just just like that. I mean, cool. yeah, Al, Al was very, very good at it, you know. We have a guy in our area, Gabe Rosales. He used to play with uh, J-Lo, you know. He was in the uh-huh. gym, and he can play all that sort of stuff and then some, you know. he He's, you know, got got real fast fingers so he can play jazz, and it almost sounds like he's playing with a guitar pick, you know. But he's, his technique is so good with his right hand, he can, you know, he's, he can play any kind of music and throw at him, really. But yeah, yeah, those, yeah. those kind of those musicians, uh, creative young musicians trying to you know come up with an original sound and original you know sometimes maybe the music theory would get in the way you know i mean when you're just trying to recreate an idea you know 
can I do this? Am yeah. I allowed to do that? How many times has somebody asked you that? Am I allowed to do this? <laughs> that happens yeah. all the time, right? Well, I, I yeah, but I always say, does it sound good? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what does it matter? Well, that, well, you know? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, but, yeah, but try, <laughs> people that try to get permission, you know, you, you, you go, yeah, yeah. The, the answer is yes to every question, you know, in music. Can I do this? Yes. But it sound, that doesn't matter. What if I do, oh, go right ahead? You know, it's like it really doesn't matter. <laughs> the, on the other hand, the knowledge is also a good thing because you can say something like, well, that part that you're confused about, if you just go two, five, one, the shuffle, we're, we're good. But what's that? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and something, sure. Something real simple. You're, you, get, you hit a roadblock that would, could be very much. You take a lot of time. When you didn't have to see. Yeah, yeah. There's there's some people online that that uh, disc uh, or dis uh, theory. You know, you don't have to study theory to be a good guitar player. And says, yeah, but to think of the people that are really great guitar players who know theory. It's like without the theory, they wouldn't be who they are. And you start naming these guys, and it's pretty apparent that it's important to study music. You know, very very uh, helpful. And uh, well, plus it gives you more ideas. It gives yeah. you more places. No, that's know. all it is is ideas of what creative ideas from what other people came up with you go oh, is that yes. what that guy did well then if he did that i can do this that's all that theory yes. is you know theory yes. isn't some like rule book that you know incarcerates you and puts handcuffs on you and you know you, no, you can't yeah, exactly out. you can't exactly break, you right. can't break out of it if you know theory once you know theory you're no. stuck <laughs> it's totally not true you know. No, it's absolutely not true. No, it's a big so, help. It's huge. So you 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 came from uh, Louisville. You ended up in Hollywood. Uh, you you you're still in the West Coast. You never went back. You know. Um, no. no. Uh, you're in the. You live out in the valley uh, now. The. No, I live in Santa Monica. Oh, I Santa Monica. Well, that's a much nicer climate. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Much nicer. Oh, yeah. Santa Monica is one of the great urban places to live, period. It's yeah, my dad used to, because uh, we lived in Santa Monica for a while, and uh, uh -huh. my dad used to always say that, guys, is, is there a better climate than this anywhere in the world? I mean, this is just no. amazing. Yeah. No, yeah, it was not. fantastic, especially when that sea breeze comes in and you got that, you know, that uh, uh, overcast when it's hot inland. It's like yeah, a built-in oh, yeah. built uh, air conditioner down there. Yeah, yeah. it's Plus, been rough lately. Good music stores. Sorry. Huh? Good music yeah. stores in the Santa Monica area. <laughs> yes, there are. Although they closed the guitar center near me here. Well, that's one of those big industries that got wiped out from COVID. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess some of them are open because somebody said the one out there in the valley is open and stuff. So I don't know what happened. Well, you know, you know what's what's interesting about that is the record-setting sales they've had this year because of this pandemic. You know, people have bought more guitars than ever through in history. Did you know that? I was curious about that, John. Wait, no, I, so that's overall. That's not just your store, then. No, I'm talking about in the world. Every wow. every company, every guitar, you know, major company. They're, they're they've sold more guitars than they ever have ever, because of the the wow. pandemic. Yeah. Is that their thing, and that's why? Because yeah. people are just bored. Because people there? are people are at home. They're they're home. They got. They're twiddling their thumbs now. They're practicing their guitars. So I, I would think that, uh, you know, once you're clear to teach again and you can, uh, 
because we're starting to teach music at the guitar shop again. You know, we wear masks and all that. But that's just happened recently because they're letting up on the restrictions, you know. But I would think you'd be back in business. At... Yeah, well, I just teach online. I teach online now, so oh, I don't okay. even deal with that. I do a bit of that. but uh, Yeah, I, it's, it's okay. Yeah, it, it's worked out great for me. It's, it's an, uh, oh, good. Plus, I, I scanner on my phone so I can send written material right away. So it's worked out wonderful. Really okay. Has. Is there yeah, anything that we haven't, so uh, haven't covered that you, uh, you want to talk about? Can you think of anything? I mean, I mean, well, I mean, my, you've got such my an interesting output, career. Your pardon? My my own output, which is what I've done for, uh, for several a number of years now. You know, I've um, I've always been a songwriter, and you know, creating my own kind of oove, <laughs> sort mm-hmm. of. You know, so I I. I have an album on uh, Spotify, which is under that Stray Deuce name. It's called uh, Legend of Room 4. And I have I have probably three more albums that I've done, of all original material, fully recorded and everything else. They're, are and they uh, up? Are they available? Or are, you, are they... The Legend of Room 4 is. That's on uh, Spotify and iTunes and all that kind of stuff. But there's other but albums really, that you no. haven't released yet. Is that what you're saying? You, you haven't... Yeah, there's one. Because I haven't decided. You know, nowadays, what do you do? I mean, do you... You don't do you make CDs? A lot of people can't even play a CD anymore, you know. So it's just it's all a streaming kind of a thing. Yeah, right. Or unless you want to make vinyl or something, it's it's really hard to figure that out. I'm just trying to get to that right now. In fact, I just wrote a, a song about Billie Eilish, which a lot of people have heard and think is really really good. And so I want to figure out a way to try to get that up streaming and maybe even try to get it to her. I think she's cool. a great story, by the way. I mean, she and, and her, you know, her, her brother did that in their, their bedroom, you know, just did it on Logic on a laptop. And it's just a great story. You know, it's really and she can actually sing, which is I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you said that. <laughs> you can actually hear her live and she can actually sing. She sings on key and she does a good job. She's got a sense of humor. I mean, something nowadays. What you see when you mentioned that thing about all the guitars being sold because of the pandemic, it seems like there must be something else going on there because people can still do all their digital stuff, right? Even more so sitting at home, right? Mm-hmm. So there must be something else going on there as far as the guitars being sold, or at least I hope there is. And one thing I did hear is that a, a majority of the new guitar players are female. Yeah. Which I think is real interesting. Boy, they sure can play some of them. I've been oh. checking checking them out. They're very talented. Oh, absolutely. There was one I really wanted to, um, Helen Ibe, I think her name is. Anyway, I, I, I tried to reach out to her because I wanted to uh, interview her. I thought her guitar playing was so great that I would really like to talk to her about her inspirations and all that sort of thing. It's fascinating. Hey, I really want to thank you for uh, coming on the show today. You're a terrific guy all, all, all the way around. You talked about me way too much. Thanks. <laughs> this is supposed to be about you. Um, well, I know. What that, that, that's for, John, is that when you go to ask somebody to be on your show, they should know that you're as good as they are or better. <laughs> <laughs> Cut it out. They won't be able to, like, uh, talk, you know. That's you, right. You make them so, nervous. When this man comes to you, get on his show. That's, that's the thing. There. Man, there's a story there, yeah. 
because most of the music that I play has been behind curtains, you know, uh, the things that I've studied and the teachers I've had, and it's all a, a private life, private hobby stuff that, you know, ranks pretty high if you start, to, you know, revealing it. You know, you start saying, you did that? Yeah, like I, I did an interview with a guy, and the guy said, do people know that you're a great bebop guitar player? You know, and you go, <laughs> well, I don't ever talk about that. What do you, what do you, why are you even bringing that up, you know? Because well, you play the guitar like Joe Pass and Barney Kessel, and you play like Tal Farlow, and you play like all these great yeah. jazz guys. I said, well, that was just was a great. hobby for me, and it was kind of hard to try to make a living, uh, you know, playing like that music, you know. So I, I just did that because I love it, you know. But yeah, I guess. <laughs> well, one last quick thing that I don't know if you remember this or not, as far as us playing together, but Vale Johnson, who you interviewed actually played with us to audition for a record label. Do you remember that? You you had him playing so you could try to get no, a deal? No, you did. You and I and Randy, and then you pulled in Val Johnson to play the audition on bass. And there we were. We had a chance for a record deal off of a four-song demo we did, and our bass player bails on us. <laughs> you know, it's like... You can't let that happen. I mean, to all those folks that might be listening, if you're trying to get a deal or something, you can't let that happen. You get an opportunity like that, you've got to go after it. Yeah, you got to treat know? it like a business, you know. Oh, man. You know, musically, everything. You know, and Vail did a great job that day. But, you know, people at record companies pick up on that stuff, you know. And it was just, it was sad. It was, it, it, and I didn't even prepare when we played for Motown with the original group. You know, even though there was other factors that were involved then with, with the oil crisis at the time and everything else. But, you know, for all those out there, you get a, a chance for a record deal. You've got to get put everything into it. You know, what you look like on stage, all of it, you know. Yeah. Well, everybody's got their own lives. I mean, we can't. Yep. He we might he might have had things happening that we just don't understand or didn't even know about. So, uh Absolutely. I, I'm, will, I'm willing to forgive and forget. But uh, yeah, yeah, I, I got a lot of those kind of uh, close, close, uh, close to being well, on the top or <laughs> close to being employed is more like it. You know, that's, yeah. that's the way I look at it. Why, why do you do all those things, John? I got to stay employed. That's why. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey, well, fantastic. And hopefully we'll get to see each other again uh, soon. And, uh, yes, and this so pandemic thing is behind us and we'll be walking nude on the beach somewhere, not afraid of getting infected, you know. <laughs> and uh, we could see you out there on the uh, boardwalk at Belboa Pier playing a solo while you're wandering around. Yeah, yeah. B busking for a handout. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Chuck. I'll talk to you again. Yeah. See ya. Thank you so much. Uh -huh, my pleasure. And lasers bouncing off of mirror balls. I've crashed a rave and see my downfall. You've been listening to a belief podcast. Bodies. I was your and host, John Hoisenstein. This is the I guitar line. We talked with Chuck Smith today. One of his tracks here. Legend of Room 4. Chuck Smith. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Believe. 
You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.